Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. All right, on today's episode, I welcome back to the show Ms. Madison Archangeli and Ms. Katie Nazartova from Forza DC. They were on our show a couple months ago, and we had an episode that talked about the defense budget process. But of course, since then, we've had a very busy time on Capitol Hill uh, with the defense bills coming to the floor. And so since we are now entering the what is known as the August recess period, where everybody in D.C. goes home and on vacation, we thought it would be a good time to bring them back on to talk a little bit about what we learned from the bills and kind of what the the way ahead is. So Madison, Katie, great to have you back on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for taking some extra time to uh, join me this morning. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be back. All right, so let's just get started with a quick overview kind of where we're at. So just basically start off, I wanted to kind of talk about like where we're at right now. It's uh, August recess. Congress just left Capitol Hill to go back to the districts. Very busy July. So what was on Congress's plate in July in terms of defense? I'll kick it off. So coming out of the Armed Services Committee, the committee had a really strong bipartisan vote. Only one member voted against it, which was Rep. Ro Khanna from California, which was not a surprise to anyone as a really strong progressive member in the House. On the floor, on July 14th, it passed 329 to 101, another really impressive bipartisan vote. During the floor consideration, the House considered hundreds of amendments. There were over a thousand amendments that were submitted to Rules Committee. I, I would joke and call it the Good Idea Fairy was was there. Um, <laughs> she was very active this year. And, and with the amendments, I mean, I, I remember you know back back in the Hill, you know, we used to consider like you know two hundred amendments just outlandish that someone would we would try to offer two hundred amendments, and this was a. Like, where did these thousand amendments come from? I mean, it's 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 quite remarkable to me, you know, that that this process has exploded so much with kind of being the vehicle that these good ideas get attached to. It's it's kind of the proverbial Christmas tree where all the ornaments and everybody's favorite ornament is hung up on on, on the tree. So, while we're on that topic, explain how that worked out because obviously the House did not consider a thousand amendments. So. How was that narrowed down to a manageable slice so that Congress could pass the bill in July on schedule as they had planned? Yeah, so I'm happy to take that. So basically how that happens with any big bill that the House considers is that uh, members have a specific deadline, usually a week, to offer all these amendments. And the NDA usually wins on the number of amendments that people decide to put on that because people know that this is a bill that get, is going to pass and passes every year. And so this is kind of a lot of people's opportunities. So you see a lot of things that are germane to defense and other things that are not at all, but people think it's a great opportunity for them to pass it. So then um, at the end of that kind of week stretch of, you know, offering amendments that all goes to the Committee on the Rules that has their own hearing on this bill and eventually decides which amendments are made in order 
So which ones are going to be considered on the House floor and which ones are not? This year, it was about 600-something that ended up being made in order, so still a huge number, but about half of those that were offered. And then it is up to the powers that be, once again, being the Rules Committee, et cetera, to decide which amendments go in the big on-block packages. So these are the packages that are non-controversial, that people are going to easily be fine with passing. And so they all kind of get together. And these typically will be either passed by voice vote or sometimes they'll be passed as kind of a result of approving the rule for consideration of the bill, correct? That's correct. And I think for the most part, they all did get a recorded vote this year. And I don't know what the reasoning behind that was, but maybe members just wanted to message on it or what. I think this year they did. And then there's always a handful of other amendments. And what the House Armed Services Committee does really well on this is that they publish an amendment tracker that is updated pretty often. So you, anyone can really follow that along on their website on the amendments that need to be debated. So these are kind of either big ticket items that are very controversial, like Rep. Barbara Lee's AUMF get, you know, a debate every year or other various things like related to nuclear deterrence or anything like that. And those either get voiced down, so voted down immediately, or the member asks for a recorded vote just to try their luck with the full House. So what were some of the, you know, you mentioned it was bipartisan, but there was one vote against it in the committee, progressive member. And, and I don't know what the breakdown of the opposition, the, the small opposition to the passage on the floor, but it might have been more diverse because there's a number of different perspectives on that defense budget. But what were some of the big ticket items that were either discussed or caused members some heartburn? Um, obviously, the top line spending was one, but there was some other big ticket things that just kind of attracted a lot of attention. So at least in the committee, some of the big items that got I will say, consumed a lot of the debate time were critical race theory issues, vaccine mandates, nuclear stockpile, nuclear weapons issues, like Katie mentioned. And also, Ken, like you said, the top line, there's definitely a fraction of the Democratic Party that is opposed to higher defense spending, certainly, but also thinks that the president's budget would have been too high as well. And so there's almost every year, pretty reliable block of Democratic votes that will just not vote for the defense bill at all. And then this year, you know, you see the the 101 that didn't vote for it on the House floor. Um, That is a mix of those Democrats and also some Republicans who are going to, who make the argument, this bill is full of Democratic social priorities and blah, blah, blah. And then there were probably also some Republicans that, I don't know if this was, I I did not look at the vote count, but usually either it's maybe a little bit too high, but mostly even maybe not high enough on, on the Republican side. And so you end up mixing these two com- diametrically opposed forces and they still end up opposing the same bill. Yep, absolutely. And so there was an amendment that was offered on MSO that I want to get to in a minute. But just, you know, before we get there, just wanted to talk about some of the funding uh, lines that attracted your attention and obviously the attention of some of your, you know, of the defense community and the House NDAA. And then we'll want to talk a little bit about the the amendment. Yeah, so I can kind of talk about that a little bit, too, because right now it's kind of interesting because technically we have four bills that we're looking at. The House and the Senate NDAAs are their two separate 
beasts, and that goes along with the Senate and House appropriations. So as you know, you all remember, we sent a letter earlier in the year on to House and Senate leadership on these committees on, you know, EW priorities that should be funded that were included in the services uh, unfunded priorities list. So those were kind of the things that we were tracking as these bills came out throughout the last few months. And so kind of the biggest things that I can go over in the NDAAs and then if we have time, we can kind of go through the appropriations bills as well. But all of them, safe to say, were different. There's a lot of priorities that were kind of funded across the board like they were in the president's budget. Some things like the Senate NDAA increased funding for ground air task-oriented radar, so GATOR radar. Uh, It included ARNG plus-ups as well. Everything else was pretty level in the Senate Armed Services Committee um, NDAA. And then the House NDAA included quite a few good things. They blocked the Navy's proposed retirement of the EA-18G growlers. Uh, There was report language on sensor open systems architecture and CMOS standards evaluation and enforcement, and then some other things on Secretary of Defense briefing on EMBM and AI and multi-domain operations, and just a pretty good, robust bill for EW priorities. It, it, it's interesting because this year it's, it's the House bill that has all the good provisions in it that we want to talk about as a community. Some years it's the Senate, and sometimes we don't know until we actually see the bill. Like, oh, you know, like this this year everything got, got in the House bill, which is nice, and we got that first. We I just was looking at the Senate bill, and I was like, eh, all right, there's, I guess, some stuff there, but I haven't had a chance to, to dig into it. But it's clearly the House bill is the one that I think, you know, our community needs to focus a lot on because there's a lot of goodness in that bill that we hope will make it through to the final process and into the conference report. One of the things I wanted to bring up, though, is, you know, for those who follow AOC's work on the Hill, you know, we work a lot with this congressional EW working group led by four members of Congress, uh, Congressman Rick Larson, Congressman Don Bacon, Congressman Jim Langevin, and and, uh, Congressman Austin Scott. And Congressman Larson and Congressman Bacon joined forces to offer an amendment to that NDAA that was accepted and voted on, approved on the floor. Uh, So I want to kind of go over that a little bit and just, you know, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that amendment and, you know, how that came to fruition? Yeah, so I can go over that a little bit pretty quickly. So in leading up to, or actually a little bit after markup, we had several congressional engagements to kind of either check in with especially members of the EW working group who are very much aware of, you know, the state of play, or to new members who may be interested in EW and kind of educate them on what it is and why they should care. And so as part of the EW working group engagement, one of the things that we discussed in these meetings were the need for transparency on the MSO superiority strategy implementation plan. And so that kind of perked the interest of Rep Larson's staff. And out of that and through work with them, with uh, Rep Bacon and Rep Langevin, we came to a sense of Congress, which essentially this Amendment states that it is a sense of Congress that electromagnetic spectrum superiority underpins DOD's national defense strategy 
and uh, directs the Secretary of Defense to provide Congress with an unclassified version of the implementation plan for the electromagnetic spectrum superiority strategy and all future updates to the plan. So this amendment was non-controversial, very bipartisan, made it into one of those big on-block packages that we talked about before. And so very good news for EW. Yeah, we'll put the language up on our AOC website for people to to take a look at because I think it's got a lot of goodness in it. One of the provisions that I really liked was uh, talking about providing a coherent response to persistent gaps. And and I think this is one of the things that challenges our community to this day. You know, we have this great strategy. We apparently have a great implementation plan, although, you know, it's it's not always, we don't, a lot of us don't know what's in it, but we still don't have any, a coherent response. You go across the services, you go across agencies and DOD and offices, and you can get a lot of different stories about how we're implementing EMS superiority. And so there's, there's not that coherent response we still have persistent gaps in leadership, especially, you know, I mean, Stratcom has really done a lot of good things. You have some good things happening in, in the services, but we still have gaps in leadership and everything. And so to, to see that recognized in the amendment, I think is is good news. And hopefully, you know, it's not going to change things necessarily overnight, but making DOD know that Congress is watching this you know, I think is is, is is great and hopefully it will trigger a lot more conversations and engagements between Capitol Hill and, and, and DOD. But okay, so, so, but the amendment then is past the House. What happens? We are having this conversation as kind of a leading question because we are, I had a question of like, okay, how do we then figure out what needs to happen? The Senate bill came out shortly thereafter. It's not in the Senate bill, but the Senate hasn't considered the bill yet on on their floor. So could you walk through the perspective of this amendment, like what happens next with these other bills coming to the the floor? Absolutely. So like you mentioned, the Senate bill was released. Normally when you see a bill released like that, at least with NDAA, something so massive, when the text gets released, um, the bill is filed, it's usually an indication you're going to see it move on to the floor within the next couple of weeks maybe at max a month. And the reason they do that, they try to time it up that closely is what I have called and others have called the hate machine could get turned on. People have time to read the bill, figure out what they don't like about it, throw a big stink about it, puts the bill in jeopardy of failing, not passing. The good idea fairy comes back, basically. This time around, though, the Senate released their bill. You know, We have heard that it was because they wanted to be ready to go if the semiconductor chips bill didn't come to the Senate floor. but we don't know. It could also be because they don't think they're actually going to go to the floor. So we don't know exactly what the internal calculus was, but that's what the speculation is. Is this a new trend? Because this is what happened, I guess, last year where it never actually came to the floor. I, mean, I, don't, know, I don't even know if it was actually released last year. I think at least this year we have a draft. You know, it partly depends, I think, in the makeup of the Senate. Currently, last year it didn't come to the floor because they couldn't agree on what amendments to also bring to the floor. And so the Senate didn't vote. There was no way for them to get it off the floor once they once they took it there. So I'm not sure if, if it's a trend per se that could change after this election, depending on who is still in office and who is not. But you know, as of right now, we are expecting the Senate bill to be considered in September. Of course, that again depends on have dynamics changed since last year or not. <laughs> So if the, if the Senate bill is brought to the floor, it'll get voted on. There, and as it relates to this amendment, there's a couple of different ways it could go. 
if we can work with the Senate office to get someone on the Senate side to also introduce it, it's in both bills. That's great. Then it's not conferenceable. So it, it won't be negotiated in the conference. It's just in the bill. It will come through and be in the conference report. If it's not included as an amendment on the floor or the Senate does not consider their bill, that means we then have to protect the language during conference, when that basically means making sure that the language stays in, that when the conference report or some sort of final agreement comes out of both the House and the Senate, gets voted on, goes to the president's desk, our language is in it. And that's done you know, by engaging the conference committee, engaging staff, bolstering up those really important supporters of ours with the caucus, a working group. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show.
Could you give some insight into how the the conference committee just generally would work or might work? You know, it's always a kind of a secretive or not well discussed, you know, aspect of the legislative process here. You know, so um, we hear Congress goes in, brings up a conference report or goes into conference and then magically this this new bill comes out and all these agreements have been made. I would imagine that they're already kind of in that process, even though formally the bill may not have passed the Senate. Staff are talking, members are talking to try so that the conference process is smooth. Can we get a conference report done by the end of the fiscal year? Or is it still looking that, no, we'll probably still be, you know, post-election or something in December? Yeah. So to your first question about can we get something done before the end of the fiscal year, anything's possible. I would say that's very unlikely. And the most likely outcome is we have an agreement by December. This will be a Christmas bill. Everything sort of got pushed back this year. Everyone moved sort of late. To your question about the conference report and how that how conference functions, I heard a theory that the Senate released their bill in part so that staff can start doing exactly that, pre-conferencing. So they're they are lining the bills up side by side, doing comparisons and saying this is in both bills, this isn't this is in the House bill, this isn't in the Senate bill. And then starting to work through what are those things that they need to work through. There's varying layers, and I can talk more in depth on the staff side of things than the actual voting to go, you know, the formal conference committee and the role of members at the staff level. You know, it is broken down of the PSMs, the line PSMs, who are the experts in their, you know, in their each, each of their fields are working both across from House to Senate and also across the aisles, so Democrat, Republican. Usually conference ends up breaking more down to a House versus Senate negotiation, defending each of their respective bills. And then what they cannot resolve then gets kicked up the chain, right? It'll go to the staff directors. Staff directors will do what's called the little four. They will all sit in a room or on a Teams chat now and try to hash out some of those more contentious issues, um, the stuff that gets kicked to them is a little bit more complicated. And then from there, whatever the little four cannot negotiate and figure out, we'll go to the big four, which is the chair and the ranking of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. And then they will hash it out. And that final outcome is what's called the conference report if it is in fact an official conference. And what I will add just onto that from the staff perspective is that all of that essentially gets done between professional staff. The only time you really hear about any of your provisions is maybe if you check in, although you'll maybe get a yes or no on like things are going really bad or things are going really good and we need some help from you either way. But usually as a staff, like personal staff, you don't see anything until my boss was always a con free. So we got to see it a little bit earlier than everybody else. But essentially, you see it the day before it gets published. You go into the Armed Services Committee room and you get two giant binders and you then have a limited amount of time, about an hour to comb through thousands of pages to find your boss's provisions. So it's kind of like it is a black box until then. And then you're kind of checking in and hoping that people know you're still paying attention. Just one last question. I wanted to... Apart from hearing from people like me who constantly bug you about electronic warfare or something, you know, this far into the process, you could just kind of give your final thoughts on on something that really kind of you wanted to highlight about 
the, the, the defense budget and what you saw either be it a provision or a, a trend or a sense of where Congress is at on this topic that really kind of hit home to you during, during this process? There are a few things. I mean, and this is probably more from a personal perspective and is probably of less interest to people listening, but I will say knowing the players involved with getting the bill to the place where it is, I'm really impressed by how bipartisan it has been. There was an incredible amount of turnover on the House Armed Services Committee with the staff director leaving and the, there's a new staff director, there's a new deputy, um, new head of policy. And I might be biased here, but I think they all did a really incredible job. And that's a really hard thing to do. And again, really speaks to the commitment to bipartisanship and decorum of the institution. That is a strongly held belief from the, the chairman and the ranking member. They both really prioritize that, and you really saw that in this outcome. The other thing that really stands out to me that might be more of an interest to, to listeners is not personal, is the way the numbers broke down. So the top line for House NDAA after the ranking member's amendment was accepted during markup is $849 billion. The Senate came in at $857 billion. And then you have the appropriation side of things where the House Appropriations Committee came in at the president's budget request of $762 billion, and then the Senate Appropriations Committee came in at $850 billion. So there's, that's a pretty big discrepancy between where PACD came in compared to everyone else. You know, I think we will see that number change. The number will most certainly be higher than the president's budget request, probably somewhere around that $840, $850, but it's up for a big debate still. It was a very, at least took me a little bit by surprise, the, the, the level of increase. I mean, I know that there was a lot of talk, obviously, a lot of concern about keeping up with inflation. And of course, you have Russia and Ukraine and some other mitigating factors. But it's still not, I think, given the political climate and you know the election year, I, I, was, I was surprised that there was so much bipartisan support for such a large increase across most of the bills, you know, letting alone, obviously, the, the, the House Appropriations Bill. So I thought that that was a really good sign that there was a lot of shared perspective on our defense and, and the need to, to provide funding for it. And I guess the one thing that I will reiterate that we all already kind of mentioned is that out of the four defense bills, I mean, clearly it's the one bill that kind of went through everything and then passed out of the House. So it's going to be bigger in general. But I do think policy-wise especially, as of now, the House Armed Services Committee did a really good job on the NDAA, and it's a very strong kind of leader for defense policy in Congress. Yeah, and, it, and definitely from the MSO Electronic Warfare Front, I mean, that's the strongest bill, and, and that's all due thanks to some tremendous members on that committee and in, in the EW Working Group. They do a great job of kind of making sure that Congress is engaged on this because it's easy to get lost in a lot of these other issues that come up as we were talking about the thousand of amendments. And one of them, of course, was for us and for our community. And I think it'll help. And so it's it's good that the Armed Services Committee and those members in there were able to, to, to be as effective. I want to uh, just thank you again for being on the show. Hopefully, you know, we'll have you back in a few months once we wrap up everything. But looking forward to having you back. And thank you for joining me on From the Crow's Nest. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. Thanks so much. That will conclude our episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank our guests, Madison Archangeli and Katie Nazaratova from Forza DC. 
Also, we always like to hear from our listeners. If you could take a moment to rate and subscribe to our show wherever you download, we look forward to hearing from you and ways that we can continue to improve the show. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.